I'm Lori Lee Binstock, host of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Every day, hundreds of Americans are affected by sexual violence. Rain, the Rape, Assault, Incest National Network has been cited many times in my podcast and in my magazine, Authentic Insider, because they are a wealth of information. The organization is dedicated to supporting survivors of sexual violence every day of the year. However, in April, during Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month, Rain is asking you to be a part of the conversation. And I was lucky enough to get Ebonique Bethay, who serves as a clinical director at Rain. She provides guidance and oversight on clinical and trauma-informed services. Ebonique, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. So glad to be here and just be a part of encouraging folks and spreading a little bit of knowledge about uh, what we do here at Rain. I feel like everywhere I read about anything on sexual assault or anything like this, Rain is always cited. And you guys are doing this every day of the year, it seems like. But April is a special month for you guys. Can you talk a little bit about that? April is Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month. And so during April, we really push to really educate folks and support survivors. Like what is sexual violence? Because there are folks that just don't know. Mm -hmm. And so um, talking about what it is and um, what healing looks like, how to support folks that disclose to you, how to support survivors in your life, where to get resources, what the healing journey might look like. I mean, it's really a month to just keep um, sexual assault and sexual violence like on people's minds because so many folks are affected by it and you know there still is such a culture of victim blaming and shaming and we really want to take the month to fight hard against it and to really get folks to kind of understand that the way that we you know prevent or fight sexual violence is through knowledge and through supporting one another. This is one of those topics people don't really want to talk about. And I think the only way, like you were saying, to fight it is to have the conversation. What is the most important information out there about sexual violence? Um, I think there's a lot of important information. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, for us, we do different themes every year. So our theme this year really centered around consent and boundaries and, and what consent looks like and what boundaries are. But that's just, you know, a piece of it. There's also like, how do you support someone who discloses to you? Because that is, that was our push last year. And it's such a big deal. It's such a major thing because as we know, when folks first disclose what they've experienced, that initial disclosure impacts so much of their healing journey. Mm -hmm. And so we really want to help prepare folks to be supported because we, we really aim to build supportive networks. So a piece of it is consent boundaries, but there's so much on the other end of just how you support someone. Like, and I think that piece is probably the part that resonates the most with me because I used to work on the hotline. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just a thrill for me to work with loved ones to say like, hey, this is how you support someone. I mean, of course I love working with survivors, but if you can help build that community or have someone that they can depend on, it, I mean, it just, 
like that warms my heart. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you are supporting survivors by supporting the people who love them yeah. and who care for them. You know, honestly, I was talking to a woman um, a couple of weeks ago. She reached out to me after hearing my podcast. She was a victim or a survivor of sexual assault. And she when she would tell people it was the whole victim blaming, you know, they would say, well, what did you do to deserve this? And she said that it was she had to start cutting people off of, out of her life. And, and because it just she felt revictimized each time she told her story. I know that that supporting someone who is supporting a survivor is a big deal. We came up with, <laughs> with this idea called talk um, mm -hmm. so that people could, you know, have something quick in your mind to think about when someone discloses to you. The acronym is TALK <laughs> and the T stands for thanking the survivor for one, sharing with you because it's not easy to share um, that experience with someone and thanking them, you know, not only for sharing, but for trusting you. The A is for asking them, like, how can you help? What do they need in the moment? And the important piece of that is asking and honoring the ask, <laughs> honoring what they tell you. Um, because mm -hmm. a lot of times, loved ones, you get into protective mode and you're like, I know what you need. Right, right. <laughs> I know how to protect you. I know what to do next. And it's really about, you know, what what are they telling you that they need? What, what do I need right now? And so mm -hmm. that's what the ask is. The L is listen without judgment. <laughs> that can be a challenge <laughs> because I think there is pieces that come up in folks that want to blame. So someone just, I need to blame, or this is the reason, or this is the circumstance. And no one needs to hear that. They, they just need someone to listen, to hear what I have to say, to hear what I experienced. And then the K is keep supporting. So there are good days and there are bad days. There are days where a survivor may want to talk about what they've experienced. There are days they don't want to bring it up. And there are days they want to talk about possibly reporting. There may be days they're like, I don't want to talk about that. Like just following their momentum and keep supporting in the way that they need. Just show up show up and honor them. That's a great acronym. You know, the ask I thought was a really important piece because, you know, the same person I was just speaking about would tell me that everyone wanted to say what they, she needed to do. Yep. And that was as if they were taking control away from her where she couldn't control what was happening. And, you know, as a, as a survivor myself, I didn't even think about that. You know, I can, you know, I can see why people want to be protective. I, I was sexually abused by my father and it took me 20 something years to talk about it. So there are things that I don't don't even realize anymore. You know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to get the help I needed um, last year. But I think that, you know, talk is an extremely effective way way to help support survivors. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's one of those acronyms that no matter how old you are. So like, even like teens that might have a friend that comes to them, like they can use talk, like it's, it's, it's just one of those acronyms that kind of fits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
you know, I mean, I know survivors that use it with other survivors. Like, right. And I mean, I think it was just, it was, I didn't come up with it, so I can't take the credit, but <laughs> um, I loved when we, you know, we pushed that out because in Sapphire, we, we seem to always push out some great stuff um, mm-hmm. because it was like very practical and like real, real for people to use. And, and that I think was just uh, the idea was like, how can we help create these supportive communities and um, survivors' lives? Rain has five rules for obtaining, confirming, and honoring consent. Could you explain? This year, the push for SAPM was the consent rules. (laughs) (laughs) And so we talked a lot about boundaries and consent. Um, The first rule was establishing boundaries. And so a piece of that is prevention. So, you know, talking to folks about like, how do you establish boundaries? Like what's okay for you and how you can communicate that and, and what's not okay for you. Um, I also like to look at it as not just prevention education, but healing education, because a lot of times folks that have already experienced sexual violence need to hear like, no, 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 you have a right to boundaries. You have a right to say, you know, what's okay for you and what's not. That person may have not honored your boundaries and not respected, but it doesn't mean that you didn't have a right to it. They were wrong. Mm -hmm. And you still, you know, you have a right to say what's okay and what's not okay. And no matter what happened, you still have that right. So I I feel like it's a part of prevention, but it's also a part of healing to, to get that, you know, some of that power back and say, no, you know, I was right. And I am, you know, my boundaries should be honored and respected. Yeah. The second, um, the second consent rule was communicating comfort zones. And so being able to talk with whoever, because it's not just in, um, in your, you know, romantic relationships, but in all relationships, um, being able to say, you know, hey, I'm okay when this happens, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. Um, Can you share with me what you like, what you don't like? Being able to just have those conversations and communicate about what's comfortable for you and being able to hear what's comfortable for the other person in your life. And we actually did a talk um, on campus um, sexual violence, but but it kind of took a little turn because we we're talking about just campus relationships um, earlier and during SAPM, just about like having, setting the boundaries for your roommate, setting the boundaries and comfort zones for your classmates, like just the idea of boundaries and setting comfort zones everywhere in your life. Um, the third is ask every time. So consent is about continuously asking and you know really being able to say like you know is this okay for you and for in in honoring the answer yes this is okay no it's not I mean there are different ways we can say it in different (laughs) depending on the scenario but um it it can be said in a in a nice seductive way (laughs) um but making sure to ask every time because just because something happened two weeks ago doesn't mean that it's going to happen today um, and, and honoring that. 
The fourth is checking in regularly. So are you still feeling good about this? Is this still okay? I mean, we can say it in different ways because people are always like, how do you say it in the middle? <laughs> but <laughs> it's just checking in. Like, you know, does this feel good to you? Does it not? Like, it's, it's just checking in and mind you, I want to know because I want to honor you because that is a respectful relationship and interaction. And the, the last thing is going back to respecting each other. All of this is about respecting each other and honoring each other. And, you know, we talk a lot about how you we set boundaries or how to set boundaries and how to, um, to communicate consent, but also like, how do you honor other people's boundaries? How do you honor other people's consent? If you want to move forward and they don't, like, are you saying like, okay, that's, you know, that's okay. Are you being supportive? Are you being comforting? Or do you have times where you're being manipulative or sometimes a little coercive? So, you know, we talk about it, but we also have to kind of check ourselves and how we present in these relationships. You were talking a lot about boundaries mm -hmm. and I feel like that, you know, especially for me, boundaries is just one of the, the hard things for me. Um, but I'm learning that talking about boundaries at such a young age is extremely important. You know, we were always, you know, I was always taught like, oh, if your aunt wants to hug you, you hug her because that's disrespectful if you don't. Mm -hmm. But we have to respect ourselves. And I think we need to learn at a very young age. <laughs> Absolutely. I have four daughters and people are always like, you know, are, you know, you got to protect them and teach them about sexual violence and this, this, and that. And I was like, yes, I do. But I also have to teach them like how to be respectful of other folks' boundaries and how to honor someone's consent, because it's not just about them protecting themselves, but it's also about how they treat others. Mm -hmm. And so if we get into a practice of teaching young people very, you know, early on, like not only how do you set these, how do you set boundaries and how do you communicate consent, but how do you honor other people? Because at the crux of sexual violence is about folks not honoring and respecting someone else. So we need to be teaching, how do you honor others? How do you respect? How do you show that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, we, you were talking about sexual violence on campus and it's pervasive, yes. you know, I mean, I was sexually abused by my father, but you know, that kind of led to PTSD symptoms, which led to maladaptive coping skills, which, you know, led to other traumas, which, you know, I don't talk about it a lot. Um, but I was actually sexually assaulted in college. Um, I didn't think about it at the time. I just assumed like it was just my fault or, you know, maybe I was just asking for it. And, you know, I never thought about it. And honestly, I feel like I was kind of dealing with my original trauma a lot, but what are some reasons why students are not reporting sexual assault? There's a piece of it where they don't feel necessarily safe with the reporting process on, on their campus. Um, not all campuses have like, you know, student organizations that, you know, center around like sexual and interpartner inter um, violence. There are a lot of campuses that don't have anything but the Title IX office. And 
the process of that <laughs> is sometimes re-traumatizing mm-hmm. for um for survivors. So they, you know, choose to sometimes like reach out to their local sexual assault service providers in the community because they don't feel safe um, on the campus. And I mean, there is a piece of, you know, victim blaming that goes on. Um, They don't want this information kind of put out in their, um, the campus community. And lo and behold, that happens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, I think it's, there's been so many um, just breakdowns in trust with, stu- you know, with students and, you know, the faculty or, or the Title IX office, just not honoring and like really providing good support to students. Now, there are, of course, campuses that, that do have all these things, but I, I think there are a number <laughs> that don't and, you know, students don't feel safe coming to report because, why, why should I open myself up if I'm to be blamed or for nothing to happen or for more people to find out and nothing happens or um, there, you know, in the, in the panel I did two weeks ago, you know, three people on the uh, three people panel, two of those folks reported that they were stalked afterwards. So they did report on campus nothing happened. And then they were stalked by the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, why would I want to? And, you know, if, if that is, you know, what folks are experiencing, if they report, you know, there are students who are like, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm just going to say, you know, I'll just save myself from that and look elsewhere for services or not seek any. Do you believe that campuses are equipped to handle sexual assaults? I know that there's, you know, there have been a lot of changes to Title IX. I really don't. Um, I don't think enough intentional effort is put into place, you know, for um, really supporting survivors of trauma or really, you know, doing things to try to prevent certain things. I, I just think that campuses are like, we have a Title IX, we have a process for if this happens. And so we're good because we have a process and you know, there's probably some counseling services on campus. So that's that. However, as we all know, not all counselors are trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not all therapists are trauma-informed. So if we don't have a trauma-informed counselor, if we don't have trauma-informed folks in the Title IX office, I mean, those, and those are the first entryways where you know a a student might access services if that's not trauma-informed from the beginning I'm not going to proceed why why would I you know it's putting you know me more at risk for being re-traumatized by this process so Mm -hmm. I don't I, I really don't think campuses are equipped I think they could be you have to to say you know from the beginning like this is this is what we're about. We're about everyone that comes on this campus has to take you know certain classes or be a part of certain things where we're talking about um, sexual violence. There has to be 
things put in place for safety along the campus. Campus police should be trauma-informed and have to go through some trauma-informed training. Mm -hmm. You know, because if campus police isn't trauma-informed, they're going to deter people from reporting. Mm -hmm. They're going to make someone, you know, feel like it's either their fault or this is not that bad because we've heard people say that. Um, so there are so many people, faculty and staff and and really a part of the administration that really need that trauma-informed and really need to learn more about sexual violence mm-hmm. and then put the programs in place. But when they try to put programs in place and you don't have enough people who really understand. Right. What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. That should be that should be necessary. That should be to have to be trauma informed. You know, honestly, I didn't even know about trauma informed care until last year. Um, And and I've been to facilities that are trauma informed. And then I've been to a facility that wasn't. And there is a significant difference. I mean, I prior to me working specifically um, in the area of sexual violence, like I did social work with foster care and adoption. I did social work um, working with substance use and mental health. Like I, I did social work inside of a juvenile detention facility. And when I tell you the amount of professionals other therapists, other social workers who were not trauma-informed. And in all of these places, you're working with people who've experienced significant trauma. Now, the pieces that always jumped out to me was like, wow, all like sexual violence is pervasive everywhere. Mm-hmm. But there were multitudes of traumas that, that folks had come, you know, that I met with and they were my clients. And I'm looking at other professionals who had no inkling of trauma-informed care. And though the courses are there and the classes are there and you can get CEUs, they weren't taking advantage of it. And so what happens to all of those folks who have worked with professionals that weren't trauma-informed? What was the quality of the care they got? What did they walk away from those interactions, feeling and thinking about themselves. So you have to learn about trauma-informed care before you start working with people who've experienced trauma. And most of us have experienced trauma. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I I agree. I feel like almost everyone has experienced some sort of trauma. So being trauma-informed, especially in, in places like you know, a treatment facility or a mental health facility is necessary because I know, you know, I've met people in these facilities who are just like therapy has not worked for me. These facilities have not worked for me. And they're the facilities that weren't trauma-informed care that I was a part of, but I was luckily lucky enough to have first gone through a a residential treatment center that was extremely trauma-informed. And I just remember being blown away by it. Um, so I do think places, especially like in a Title IX office, they, they should be trauma informed. We can hope and push, hope and push. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but that's the goal. Like, that's gotta be the start. Like that, 
has to be the start before we can think title nine is ever really going to work for anybody. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. What are some of the misconceptions about sexual violence? I think the major one is that I often hear is, you know, um, who's really a survivor? Who's really a victim? And there's this idea that there is this perfect this perfect victim that they wore the right thing and they did this and like that person, you know, they are assaulted, then then it's wrong. But if it's the person who's had a few drinks or was out too late or they wore this or they were around these people, like that, like we have got to get folks out of this yeah. Some blaming mentality. Um, it's it's weird because I like I said, I used to work on the hotline. So if folks would call and they were loved ones and they're like, but they put themselves in this situation, and I'm like, wait a minute, let's back all the way up. They didn't put themselves in this situation. Someone dishonored their boundaries, someone did not respect. And and I don't care if if they were drinking too much and and they were incapacitated. That person totally is wrong. Like right. the person mm-hmm. who who decided that they were going to assault them is the the person to blame here. But I think it's there is this piece where I mean, and I hate to say that it like society kind of feeds mm-hmm. that idea you're right a victim is somehow a part of you know the reasoning why this happened to them they they had they hold some faults with it and we've really got to get people to let that go mm-hmm. yeah people to let that go because it's damaging like you're right. hurt you're you are literally hurting the survivor in your life by talking like that yeah, I, you know, I, my parents are like that. And just last week, you know, my mom, she was like, you know, when are you going to come visit us? And I was like, I'm not going to bring my kids around. Dad, I'm just not going to. And she's like, well, can't you just forgive and forget for the sake of the family? And I was just like, do you not realize how hard I've been working on myself after what has happened? And that, that messed me up for a few days. I was just like, I can't believe that, you know, someone who says they support me um, actually said those words to me. I'm sorry. Those words were even said to you like that impacted me just now because (laughs) it's, and to be honest, like I, my parents may say something similar to that. Like I, it's taken me a long time to get my dad to realize like, hey, like no, someone drinking a lot and there were guys around and they were sexually assaulted was not their fault anyway. Like mm-hmm. literally having to, it's like deprogram right. folks because this has been this narrative for so long and you know, we were raised in that narrative. And, and of course right. now, as, you know, as we are raising children and, and, and teaching them something different, you know, there's still 
this part of society that keeps that narrative going. And it's like, we have to fight against that. Um, and talking about it, like, that's why I love doing like podcasts or whatever to talk about it more because I think the more people that hear it, like it does eventually set something off in their mind. Like, okay, like, let me give, let me really think about this. Mm-hmm. Because like, I was raised in a way that was very victim blaming. And so as I grew up and as, as this became my profession, like I really had to relearn a lot of things. I had to, and I always knew something was off. I was like, that might <laughs> make sense. But yeah. it's, you know, it's been this pattern of teaching. And so we have to start a new way of educating our youth and educating folks on what sexual violence is. And it's never the victim's fault. Never mm-hmm. the victim's fault. That has to be and I believe you. When someone tells you, I believe you, that has to, instead of the default being, what did you do? Mm-hmm. The default has to be, I believe you. Yeah. Yeah. We need to change the narrative. We need to break the cycle of just victim blaming. And I, and you're right. We need, I love that you want to go on podcasts. I, I love that you want to talk about it because more and more people need to hear that. That is the only way people will be reprogrammed mm-hmm. to the default mode, which should be, I believe you. Yes, that's our default setting. I believe you. Like mm. that has to be your default setting because that just starts, that gets someone at least a little bit started on that healing journey. Somebody believes me. Mm-hmm. It's not all in my head. I know that person told me nobody would ever believe me. I know that person said it was my, but someone saying, no, I believe you. And I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. A majority of child victims, they're 12 to 17. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as parents, what can we do to help our children understand consent and prevent sexual violence and, and always keep that, that, communication open I think it begins with not just tying consent to sexual activity or or sex ed but tying consent and setting boundaries to life and being able to say like even when you said um you know if you don't hug your aunt you're being disrespectful like you have to even if you don't want to like we have to teach our young people that to be to honor themselves and to respect themselves in a way that they can communicate what's not okay with them and it's okay for them to set those boundaries and so when we have when we work with young people in all of their areas of life with setting boundaries and you know asking for consent or you know or, you know, discussing consent with someone else, it will trickle into those other parts, into those, you know, romantic relationships. When we make it the norm to talk about it regularly, it has to be not just, I, you know, I have power to say yay or nay only in (laughs) these situations because Mm -hmm. it won't come naturally. 
I, I, I won't feel comfortable with it. So a piece of it is making talks about consent, just a normal conversation that we have. Yes, we can, you know, talk about it with our youth in regards to their romantic relationships, but about it with their friendships, about consent with family members and boundaries with family members. Like we have to make it a normal discussion. We have to make it a part of De youth development mm -hmm. is talking about consent and boundaries and letting and the way that we keep that open communication is by honoring our children's boundaries asking for consent I have to do that with my girls I have very empowered young women <laughs> and sometimes I'm like oh. <laughs> and they're like that's not okay for me mm -hmm. and and because it's always been that conversation, like my 18 year old saying like, mom, I, I don't think I want to do that. I know it's a family thing, but it's not okay. You know, I don't, I don't feel comfortable around certain people. If they don't feel comfortable and they've not said that this person's done anything, they, all they said was, I don't feel comfortable around this. Okay. You don't have to be around people you don't feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And they, they know I respect and honor that. And that's why the communication stays open. So I think, you know, not only having the conversations, but proving to them that you are really on board with what you said. Yeah. Do you feel like even elementary schools and middle schools should be providing this type of education? Yes. <laughs> So that's a little thing that's always in the back of my head. I'm <laughs> like, there has to be like in elementary school and like these youth programs, there has to be some curriculum that our young people come across regularly talking about consent. Um, because I think one thing that will happen from that is that youth that are not in healthy living environments who are being, you know, abused, having those conversations, bringing this up allows them a space and place to talk about it. And I'm not saying everyone will, but we do have to provide opportunities for young people to tell us that they're not okay. Right. And I don't believe that we do that. I think that a lot of times we just kind of want you to come in, come to school or come to practice or come to this activity and do the thing and go home. No, we are a community. We, we need to be invested in each other and care for each other. And if a child is coming to me for an activity, I should have some piece of, of a safe space or place where they can say to me if they're okay or they're not okay. Like, I think that has to be, if we're working with young people, we all have to be on the same page. And so I think always there should be some, in every curriculum, something about consent, something about boundaries. Do you think that will happen? Do you think that that is a possibility? possibility? <sighs> I, I have hope. <laughs> I hope I do. Um, I do think that it will take a lot of voices 
Um, I think the more that, you know, celebrities talk about certain things, I think that the, when we all kind of band together and people use their talents to really push this, I think that is when we'll get that kind of momentum. Um, similar to, you know, once, you know, Me Too, like, came out and, like, folks were, like, on board and, like, talking about sexual violence and, like, educating others. Like, we need that, we need that momentum to stay. Yeah, because everyone was listening. Everyone was listening. And it's like, no, it's, it's not a movement for a moment. Like, right. <laughs> we need folks to listen. And I think when folks with, you know, we all have areas of expertise, folks that have, you know, the spaces where people are listening to them or folks that, you know, work on the hill and folks that like everybody has their lane. And if we all work together in our lanes, we can get this thing that is really instrumental in our future, in the health of our children in the health of our country, in the health of our global community, mm-hmm. like that's how important consent and boundary education is. It impacts everyone because like, it's just teaching us how not to hurt others. Mm-hmm. That's a big piece of it because sexual violence is about folks not respecting others. Right. And what we need to do is start at the baseline. How do we respect each other? How do you show someone respect? How do you show, how do you honor someone? Baseline, if we can get people right there, <laughs> <laughs> it would do a world of difference. Yeah. What are the signs to look for or changes in behavior to look for if we suspect someone we know has been a victim of sexual assault or abuse? Um, well, for our younger people, it's, you know, it can be definitely change, extreme changes in behavior. So, you know, the most talkative kid being less talkative, um, being isolated. Uh, and so, and, and that's the thing about young people, they can go from, it can be one extreme or another. Mm. Um, folks that wanted to be home, not wanting to be home all of a sudden, um, grades significantly um, declining, um, not wanting to participate in certain activities that they once really enjoyed, eating and sleeping. It could be the two extremes, always like eating, eating for comfort or the opposite, not wanting to eat. Um, It could be with sleep, sleeping all the time or, or just lethargic all the time, which is, you know, really significant for, for young people that are having, um, going through depression or folks that can't sleep. Like they, it just seems like the, the child can't sleep at all. And, and, and a lot of those also mirror in adults, the difficulties with eating or sleeping. Um, but there, you know, there are also like some signs of anxiety or or just constant nervousness, never feeling safe, or 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 speaking about safety in a way like like that the person is often is in harm's way, even though you're like it, there's nothing going. It doesn't seem like anything's going on. Really, just kind of listening to people because there there's often something that has changed 
And I mean, the person that used to talk on the phone to all the time, not really wanting to talk or being kind of distant or, you know, not seeming focused. You just want to ask folks, are you okay? Is there anything going on you want to talk about? And even if you kind of know something happened or um, this also happens a lot with folks um, who are close to people that are experiencing intimate partner violence, you know, they know something's wrong or they know something is going on, but they're like, do I just ask directly? Just, just provide an opening. Mm-hmm. safe space opening somewhere where you are close with that person and you just say are you okay I just noticed that you didn't seem like yourself mm. and I'm if you want to talk about anything I'm here just that just that and you can use that with young people too like I noticed that you know you're not going out to play or you know you've been a bit anything you want to talk about they may not want to talk right there but you let them know anytime you want to talk, I'm here and let that go. Hmm. You, you, oh, they just want to know I have the opportunity and, you know, and if, when you provide that opportunity, also be prepared to honor that, please. And <laughs> because that, that young person might come to you or your friend might come to you and tell you, yes, I've experienced this and I don't know what to do or I don't know where to go. And you just listening and kind of being there with them, you're not gonna have all the answers. You don't know their healing journey, what it's gonna look like, but you know, I'll be here with you as you go through this. And that's what you want the survivor to know. I'm here with you. We're doing this together. Yeah, well, if people don't know what to say, I know that rain provides a lot of information. What what kind of what kind of resources um, does rain provide? Yeah, we operate the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is a 24 7 365 free confidential hotline for survivors, for loved ones, for even professionals call, um, just to either get resources or to just talk. For some folks, um, it's their first disclosure when they call the hotline. So, you know, they don't, they, they're not sure what next steps they wanna take. So our hotline staff are trying to just be with the survivor wherever they are you know, we're going to talk about whatever you want to talk about. If you just want to cry, I'm here. Go ahead. <laughs> mm. you know, go ahead. Cry. Um, if you want to talk about, like, if you want to role play, you know, how to disclose to someone, like we do that. If you want to brainstorm mm. different ways, if you, you, maybe you can't say the words because we have a, we have a telephone hotline and an online chat. And, you know, there are some folks who are like, I can't, I can't say what happened to me. I, I yeah. can't, but I need to tell my mom or I need to tell someone. And so we talk with, we are chat with them and help them create letters if they want to write it in a letter. Wow. They, like it's, it's really about finding, you know, supporting folks where they are and finding, you know, what they need right now or what might help right now. And, you know, sometimes 
you know, someone will come and they'll be on for 15 minutes and they're like, I can't do anymore. I might come back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys are just there creating safe spaces for people. That's it. That's that's incredible. Um, So that's, you know, that's where I come from the hotlines. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always connected to hotline work. Um, But we also do, um, we work with folks on the Hill. Like we, we work in policy. Um, we do public education. So um, there's a lot of, like we, we did a different events at the beginning of SAPM, just putting out public education about campus sexual violence, about, um, you know, the consent rules and <laughs> talking about boundaries. So we do a we, we do a lot of those. Um, we work with a lot of media outlets, um, and you know we did some work with like the folks at Grey's Anatomy <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, with Lifetime and the um, Survivor R. Kelly series. Like we kind of you know help with that. So like we kind of like in a variety of places. We also do consulting and training. So we work with um, other organizations who, you know, they may feel like, hey, you know, we are experiencing sexual harassment on the job, or, you know, we want to create some type of training to kind of prevent sexual harassment or, or to at least, you know, make sure we train folks. We, we work with a lot of um, organizations on things like that. Um, and just educating like professionals on what sexual harassment and sexual violence in the workplace look like. So, wow, incredible. <laughs> and you know, this, this, we're publishing this episode on April 28th. So I had a lot of listeners early in the morning. So before they're getting ready um, to put their outfit on, April 28th is Denim Day. What is Denim Day? So I love denim day and I always take a picture. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So denim day is all about, um, we we encourage folks to wear denim because it it actually links back to a case, um, a past case where a woman, you know, was sexually assaulted. There was a court case and like, literally they went through the what did you have on and um the idea was that her it it was like impossible that she was raped because like she had tight jeans on and had to like take them off herself and like that's why it wasn't (laughs) oh goodness it doesn't matter what we wear we stand with all survivors um and no matter what you had on, no one has the right to do this. And because you had on tight jeans does not mean that you took them off willingly and that you weren't sexually assaulted. So it's really a day of just banding together and saying, you know, we see each other and we support each other. Wow. Well, I'll be wearing denim. (laughs) I sure will. I know I typically just wear yoga pants, but I will wear denim on April 28th. Denim on too. I, I I always do like a whole thing. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, just that, you know, rain is here. 
um, for folks. It, you don't have to be a survivor if you're a loved one, if you just want more education. Um, you can always go to our website, rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. We have a plethora of information um, on talking with minors, you know, signs and symptoms, what you can do if you're in a situation where you see something happening and you don't know quite like how to intervene or how to call for help. Um, we have information on that. And just um, if, if you need to connect with someone on the hotline for one-on-one -on -one support, like I said, 24-7, 365, um, you can reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Thank you so much, Ebonique. That was Ebonique Bethay, Clinical Director at RAIN. For more information about RAIN, just go to RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. Or visit my website at TSTpodcast.com. That's the letter A, TSTpodcast.com. Also, please subscribe to my monthly digital magazine, Authentic Insider, for more in-depth inspirational stories. And don't forget to follow me on all of my social media platforms, which can be found at the top of my homepage at TSTpodcast.com. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Take care.